Nathan, for kind of getting this together. And just to, I'm, I'm no musical aficionado, but I could tell that was a violin, not a fiddle, when he started playing, right? <laughs> that was, uh, it's definitely uh, upping our game here, right? Um, it's good to be together. It's good to hear even these prayer requests. And even just to be reminded of the needs that are in the room. Yes, sir? There you go. I think I need to repeat that. That was that's worth uh, that's that's worth the the common edification. He said he talked to a man one time who told him the difference between a violin and a fiddle, and the difference is the man who holds the bow. So kudos to our brother, Mr. Schlender. Uh, if I held it, it would not even be a fiddle. I can tell you that. Um, but anyway, it's good to be together and good to have a time of uh, just a quick time of. Of song, and hopefully we'll we'll kind of adjust to a little bit of a shift in our program time, and and really begin to enjoy some greater fellowship. As Nathan was uh, speaking about, it's it becomes more and more difficult for people to kind of plug into the fellowship and the life of the church, and so we want to make uh, this time an avenue for that in a greater way, and um, so that hopefully this will kind of contribute to us getting to know one another and uh, and just hearing some of the needs that are out there and. And then being prompted to uh, pray for one another as the as the week goes on. Uh, let me invite you to turn back to First Corinthians chapter eleven. We're in this sort of final section of this chapter that we've been looking at for quite some time. We titled this section "From Broken Fellowship to the Breaking of Bread," and really have divided this section, this study, into two major parts. In the first part, we uh, focused in on last week. Uh, where we looked at this matter of broken fellowship that was really manifesting itself in the life of the church at Corinth in profound and even really devastating ways, uh, particularly within the context of the gathered assembly for the purpose of sharing in the love feast, is what it was known as, and a communion meal, where the church... In this particular time, they would gather frequently, and every time they'd gather, there'd be some form of fellowship meal that became uh, known as love feast. You see that reference, for example, in Jude, Um, and it was a a common sort of occurrence for the church that gathered, but a a, a part of that was not just more of a fellowship meal together, but but also it included uh, some version, some characteristic of the partaking of the communion elements. And of course, what we've already seen in this section is that the church in Corinth had really um, adulterated the sacredness of that, that memorial meal of the Lord's table. But what was driving the first part of this instruction and this exhortation and really this rebuke by the Apostle Paul was his focus and his, his continued concern uh, about the, the divisions that existed within the life of the church that were now manifesting in this particular setting. It's one thing when the church, uh, as, a, as a community of associated believers, uh, deal with and wrestle with various conflicts and interpersonal struggles and, and maybe disagreements or differences of opinion or different takes on matters of preference. Those kinds of things are common to man, they're common to life. Those things occur not just in the life of a church, but they occur in any sort of 
organizational entity where people are there, right? So navigating those things, kind of working through those things, experiencing those kinds of differences and even some, you know, types of division, that's one thing. It's a whole nother matter to see that manifesting itself quite intentionally and quite prominently when the church gathers for worship and for partaking of the communion meal, which is to be emblematic of our common life in Christ because of what he had done on the cross for our, the forgiveness, forgiveness of our sins and for our redemption. So this is sort of what's, what's on, on view here, in view here, I should say, in this first section that we looked at at some length last week. And we noted how the Apostle Paul, this is not a new concern for the Apostle Paul, these divisions in the life of the church, he, he really begins to talk about at the opening of the letter in chapter 1, this schisma, divisions is the, is the word schisma in the Greek, it's this idea of being torn apart. And so in this particular section, he's speaking of them being torn apart by virtue of how they're conducting themselves at these communion meals really boiling it down to a, a couple of different characteristics that we saw in this section. One was the, the, the uh, sort of the division associated with class or rank or social status, where those that had plenty were reveling in their abundance and food, and those that didn't have anything at all were being left hungry, and yet they were coming around the communion table as though that wasn't a problem and that wasn't an issue. And then, of course, there was also the added uh, sort of grave matter of pagan-like revelry and drunkenness that became prominent in their gathered time. And, of course, we've talked about this in the past. I'm sure you've heard this many times as as various uh, New Testament letters have been taught, how the nature of pagan worship in the first century uh, throughout the Roman Empire Uh, in many places, and certainly in Corinth and Athens and other places in that region, pagan worship was not just accompanied by drunken revelry and debauchery and sexual immorality and those kinds of things, but it was part and parcel to the actual prescribed experience. In fact, drunkenness in particular was a means, they believed, by which they could enter into a state of ecstasy and have greater communion with the gods. And so now you have the redeemed people of God who are not just partaking of intoxicants to an excessive degree such that it led to drunkenness, but they're doing this in concert with their gathered communion for worship and the partaking of the elements of the Lord's table. So it stands to reason that the Apostle Paul hears of this and is quite exercised over this this reality in the life of the church. And so in this particular uh, section, unlike what he kind of does in chapter 1 as he begins that, that discussion about the divisions that were manifesting themselves in party loyalties or or affinity for a particular leader or a particular teacher's style or their sort of their preference for how they might communicate or teach. And he made an appeal to him that there be no divisions among you. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be of the same mind. Well, here, it's not appeal, it's out-and-out rebuke. In fact, we talked about this last week, this, this consequence or the nature of broken fellowship, characteristics of broken fellowship, is that it taints the entire assembly. And he even says that it's, it's better if you weren't even together, 
It's not for the better, it's for the worse when you come together under these circumstances. Because this kind of divisiveness in the life of the church, in this particular circumstance even more prominently, it taints the entire assembly completely. And so we talked at length about the importance of us recognizing that we can't allow divisions and conflict among us to persist and also come together in the assembly without recognizing that our lack of diligence in trying to resolve conflict and divisions among us is not an isolated matter, no matter how isolated the conflict might be. There might not be anyone else but two people who know about the conflict, but what the Apostle Paul is saying is that those things don't remain isolated because we're one body. And we talked about if we understood the organic, the truly organic nature of the body of Christ, then this would make perfect sense. The problem that we often have is that we don't live with a conscious awareness that we are not just part of a a group of people that get together for shared belief and shared worship practice and sort of shared confessions of faith and teaching and that kind of thing. But what we're described as quite explicitly in the New Testament is a living body made up of members who are completely interdependent upon one another, such that the Apostle Paul elaborates on this principle in chapter 12, stating very explicitly that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. I mean, you can't separate us apart in these ways when it comes to conflict. So it taints the entire assembly when we have broken fellowship. It also fractures the entire assembly. This is sort of the next point that we looked at. In verses 18 to 19 of chapter 11, where you see the divisions that are resulting in factions. And this word for factions is a word for sex, dividing up into parties. So it's not, it's not just that you have uh, divisions amongst a, a, a couple of people, but that we all know that the tendency for conflict is that it doesn't remain contained. And our tendency is to seek allies. Maybe we seek allies to our side or our way of thinking under the, under the rubric, if you will, of seeking counsel or trying to just make sure that, you know, we're, we're not thinking erroneously. But what often is underlying some of our motivation is that, is that we really are looking for people to align with us in some way. And if we were being really stark in our thinking on it, sometimes we might even go to the place of saying, man, if I could just get enough people around me, then we could go fix that other person. We could, we could fix what's wrong with them. Now, obviously, that's probably not the, the common heart of most of us, I would hope, who are seeking to be faithful in our sanctification. But nonetheless, that is a tendency in, in a corporate gathering. We, we, we don't like to... Uh, we don't, we don't like to be in conflict. In other words, the existence of conflict between two people is the evidence that there are two people who are seeing things differently. And if it's persisting, then they are persisting in, their, in the confidence of their position. Right? Otherwise, the, otherwise someone would throw, throw up the white flag. It's, fine, you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't need to stand my ground here. The fact that conflict persists is the evidence that there is remaining or persistent confidence in divergent opinions or perspectives on a matter. That's, that's the nature of the conflict. And so the fact of the matter is, is that that kind of fracture 
And that kind of confidence in one's perspective or opinion or assessment of what, what's taken place, that kind of intractable confidence doesn't want to stay isolated. It wants to propagate and compel others to see, see how strong our argument is, how, how clear our perspective is. Especially when things get really entrenched and go on far too long, that tends to be the case. And so the Apostle Paul is not just concerned about the presence of divisions, but it's the fact that it leads to factions, to fracture, to actual parties dividing in the life of the church. That's sort of the inevitable trajectory of these kinds of things. And yet we also notice that that this is one of the ways that the Lord sovereignly and providentially refines His church and, and proves those who are true to be true, so we, we can trust in that even if we have to endure these kinds of conflicts in the life of the church. Nevertheless, we don't want to be those who are propagating them, who are cultivating them. And we want to be those who are characterized by peace, being peacemakers, and being those who pursue peace and diligently pursue the unity of the body. We also talked about how broken fellowship breaks communion. You see this in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You're not even having communion, really. Your your communion has been broken by these divisions. And we just talked about how we need to be mindful of the fact that it's not the problem is not just the conflict that we might be persisting in with another believer, another fellow brother or sister, or several, if that's the case. It's not just that that's a problem, which it is, and it's not just that it taints the whole assembly, which it does, and it's not just that it could lead to actual fractures or factions in the life of the church, but the fact of the matter is, is what it results in for everybody involved is a perfunctory and empty worship. No real worship at all. It breaks the communion, it breaks the fellowship that you share with one another, and ultimately, it causes a breach in your fellowship with the Lord collectively and individually. And ultimately, you could say that it potentially could lead to a sort of sanctioned worldliness. I mean, you think about what's required. We have to function with some semblance of rational framework to interact with people and to function just normally in society. And so, when we have conflict that's persisting, we're not seeking unity, we're not seeking reconciliation, then basically what we have to do if we're going to both persist in our conflict as well as persist in our gathering together with God's people, sitting under the teaching of God's word, uttering words and songs that express our devotion and love for God, if we're going to do both of those things, persist in the conflict, and actively participate in an ongoing way in the life and worship of the body of Christ, then the only way that we can do that with any kind of sanity is we have to build a compartment around the conflict. And we begin to rationalize that conflict. And what happens is we begin to rationalize what ultimately is sin. We find in our minds rational, what makes sense to us, justification for what is actually sin in our hearts. 
And when we do that, we are open to all kinds of potential pathways of worldliness. And those pathways can enter in even into the life of the church. So in the life of the church at Corinth, you have great worldliness on display. We already talked about the drunkenness and the revelry that took place. And it basically made them sort of associates with pagan worship rather than a beacon of light for the gospel in that community. So this matter of broken fellowship is no small matter, of course. And then the Apostle Paul turns as he gets to verse 11 to this matter of the breaking of bread. Certainly as we move into this next section, the Apostle Paul is going to continue to provide exhortation and correction around their behavior and conduct and attitudes and and divisiveness that was exhibiting, being exhibited in the times of communion, in the times of the gathered assembly. He's going to continue to go after that, but, but he prominently puts on display for us what this, this memorial meal is all about. What we are to understand and be mindful of as God's people when we gather and when we are reminded of these things. In our case, we do this monthly Generally speaking, every month we gather around the communion table and certainly the great danger for anything that's done repeatedly is it does become perfunctory. But what this should call to our attention is the real nature, the real truth, the real origin and the real purpose of this sacred assembly, this this important time for God's people, this important act of reflection and conviction and contemplation of the work of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and the covering for our sin, and all that it entails for us as God's people. And as we understand not just the nature of the organic nature of the body of Christ, but we understand the nature and purpose and origin and intent of the Lord's table, then you will find people unable to persist in assembling with, their, with conflict there. There will be a desire for unity and peace and true worship. So let's pick up the, the, the chapter here, and starting in verse 23. In fact, I think I want to read uh, the entire section just to get the whole sort of framework in our mind. So let's just read from 17 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll focus our attention mostly today on verses 23 to 34. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So here we have the, the instruction of the Lord's Supper at the very beginning, in verses 23 to 26. And then later on, we have uh, what we would call the um, corruption of the Lord's Supper in verses 27 to 34. So that's going to be kind of the larger points of our outline for this last section. The instruction in the Lord's Supper and then the corruption of the Lord's Supper. Certainly, this is focusing much more on the actual act of communion, the elements of communion, the origin of communion, the purpose of communion. So in the first half of our study, you have communion as the backdrop, but the emphasis is on this matter of broken fellowship or divisions. In this section, we're still in the backdrop of communion, but the focus is much more prominently on communion itself, the purpose of it, the sacredness of it, and and how we can defile it. So in this section, looking at the institution of the Lord's Supper, I want to start by making a few observations, and I don't know how far I'm going to get. It always surprises me. I kind of get a a pretty pretty solid outline, and then I find myself bogging down on the first point. So um, hopefully hopefully we'll get through a little bit of this. But uh, nonetheless, as we look at the institution of the Lord's Supper here in verses 23 to 26, I, I want to just focus for a minute on this very first opening phrase, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And I want us to note the special delivery of this instruction. The Apostle Paul is putting before the Corinthians and therefore putting before us what is a uniquely delivered line of instruction on this matter. In other words, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul chooses to speak of what he is about to say to them regarding this matter of the Lord's table by by identifying something unique about how this instruction was delivered to him and then therefore passed on to the Corinthians. He's placing a very special emphasis upon this uniquely authoritative nature of this teaching and the nature of the prior instructions to the Corinthians about the origin and practice of the Lord's Supper. That, that this, is, this is something that came to him from the Lord and that he delivered to them. It's, it's a reference, of course, back to verses 20 to 22. It begins with, obviously, four. It's a transition word there. It's a reference back, looking to verse 20 to 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, one gets drunk. He concludes that section. 
Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is, in, in one sense, it is the Apostle Paul sort of compounding the shame that they should feel as a result of their actions here. He's emphasizing how far they have drifted away from the very instruction that he gave to them that he received directly from the Lord Jesus. It's, it's this stark rebuke, if you will, to help them see that it's not just that you have drifted a little bit away and you need to kind of course correct a little bit. It's that you have utterly and completely veered off from what was delivered to you by me that I was instructed in directly from Christ himself. That's a major claim on the part of the Apostle Paul, and it's a major statement by him in this instruction. What you're doing, he would say, when you gather couldn't be farther away from what I taught you. And by the way, what I taught you is literally what the risen Christ taught me. It's a very stark rhetorical approach here to to drive home the point that their actions are utterly and completely shameful before the Lord and before what He has instructed us in. Now, there is some debate amongst New Testament scholars as to what the Apostle Paul is actually speaking about here or, or what the actual meaning of this statement is. So the questions are kind of like this. Is Paul stating that what follows is Jesus' own recounting of the last Passover meal and its new covenant meaning and the practice of this Lord's table that he actually and literally received directly by revelation, by direct revelation from the Lord Jesus? Or is Paul simply employing what might be common vernacular, common language or phraseology to describe just the passing down of authoritative instruction, authoritative traditions or practices that originated with Jesus himself. So rather than it being direct revelation, he's just passing down what is to be authoritative as the words of Christ, as the teachings of Christ, but it's not as though he received them directly from Christ himself, from the resurrected Christ himself. More specifically... Uh, some would argue that because of the actual nature of the Greek words in this phrase and the syntax of the first part of verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that, that this is a common and even maybe a bit of a technical way of describing this formal passing on of authoritative teaching. So some scholars would say that this is, this is how that is typically framed and phrased. So the Apostle Paul is not really saying that he received any kind of direct revelation from the risen Christ explicitly to then recount explicitly in this way to the Corinthians, but rather he is just saying something in such a common vernacular way that this is authoritative teaching that was passed on to others that was then passed on to me to pass on to you. But it's nonetheless authoritative And it's nonetheless a formal restatement. There's several reputable scholars. The reason why I'm bringing this up is that 
several scholars that I use their commentaries quite regularly hold this view, and I don't. So, uh, and I and others others that I respect don't. There, there's like it's conflict. It's one of those things that there's conflict and understanding between conservative, you know, sort of not totally, but in many ways, like-minded, helpful people. One of them I've quoted quite often is from the Pillar New Testament commentary by Roy Ciampa and Brian Rosner. Listen to what they say about this particular section. The language of receiving and passing on was the standard language for the transmission of authoritative traditions. Paul's statement that he received it from the Lord did not suggest that Christ had revealed it to him in a vision but that those who had passed this on to Paul had received it either directly from the Lord himself or from others who had. It was Paul himself who had brought the Corinthians into this stream of tradition that had come from the Lord, and now it was his responsibility to straighten out the abuses that had been introduced. The reminder that he was the one who had passed this on to the Corinthians also served rhetorically to reinforce his moral and spiritual authority in the community since it has to do with one of the most fundamental touch points for their community experience and self-understanding. It reinforces the Corinthians' awareness that Paul plays the role of the spiritual father of this community, the one who established the original connection between the Corinthians and the Lord who redeemed them. The language of the passage, excuse me, the language of the passing on of traditions also ties this passage to the beginning of the chapter where Paul referred to the keeping of the traditions He had passed on to them. Gordon Fee, another one that I use quite regularly, says this, When Paul says, I received it from the Lord, he probably does not mean that Jesus gave these words to him personally and directly. Rather, what he himself received had indeed come from the Lord, but in the sense that Jesus himself is the ultimate source of the tradition. What may also be latent in such language is Paul's understanding that the Lord, now risen and exalted, is still responsible by his Spirit for the transmission of such tradition within the church. And then finally, another commentator named Anthony Thistleton, who, interestingly enough, is often quoted by the two commentators I just previously referenced. He says this, The words translated received and handed on, found together in this way, denote the transmission of a living tradition. Hence the phrase, from the Lord, refers to the origins of this tradition as coming from Christ himself, through the earliest apostles as a pre-Pauline tradition that Paul then received and handed on. So clearly you have very conservative and very reputable scholars who would say that in this passage, the Apostle Paul is not literally saying that he received this instruction about the communion table and really this explicit recounting of the night of Passover in which Jesus actually instituted this new covenant meal, that that was not something that Jesus himself directly conveyed to the Apostle Paul, but that this is just a a, a way of saying that it was passed on to him authoritatively through prior apostles, and that it's still authoritative, and it's still from Christ, just not directly. Now, you might say, okay, whatever, okay, thanks, Richard, for all of that. Um, And and I, I, on one hand... The, these commentators, what these commentators are all saying is that this is not lacking in authority. It's not lacking in other source material, namely the Gospels. It's not absent or devoid from the actual and literal instructions of Christ himself. 
And so there's no diminishment of its intent. I just look at this kind of thing and I find it to be unnecessary. And I do believe it does in some ways diminish the potency of Paul's emphasis here. So that's why I'm bringing it up. It's like I, I, I see this, this opening phrase that the Apostle Paul begins, chooses to begin with for this instruction as carrying a level of extra potency and extra emphasis that, that matters in our understanding of, of what he's teaching here. And I say that it's unnecessary for them to do this because we know that Paul received a lot of direct instruction from the resurrected Christ on a number of occasions. So it's, it kind of boggles my mind why you would sort of get lost in the weeds of Greek phrases and syntax and then formulate a conclusion that sort of in my mind redefines or in some way diminishes the literal significance of what he's saying here. I just find it to be a bit frustrating and certainly unnecessary because there's so much material. For example, you go to, you go to uh, the Apostle Paul, at that time Saul of Tarsus' is calling in Acts chapter 9, and let me just give you a little bit of a snippet of this. It says in chapter 9 of Acts, verses 3 to 6, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So right there in the calling, Jesus appears, speaks to him directly, but also indicates that there's more to come, right? Then Jesus appears in the same chapter there to Ananias, and he instructs Ananias to go and find this man, Saul of Tarsus, because I want you to lay hands on him. He's had a vision that you would be coming. I want you to lay hands on him, heal him of his blindness. And Ananias is like, hang on, time out. This dude persecutes Christians, right? He's known. Saul of Tarsus is known. He's known by Ananias. Ananias was a disciple of Christ. And so he expresses his concerns about going to see the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul, he says, has the authority to actually bind him, to imprison him. And here's what Jesus says to sort of encourage and comfort Ananias in this calling that he's giving him to go see Saul. In chapter 9 of Acts, verse 15, he says, Go. This is Jesus speaking. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. And then verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Again, a forward-looking reference. I'm going to be dealing with the Apostle Paul more as we go forward. So in two specific accounts, one directly with the Apostle Paul, and secondly with Ananias, who becomes a part of Paul's story here, the resurrected Christ expressly says, more to come. And it doesn't end there. If you go to Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul provides a fascinating biographical detail, a, a series of details. 
that you don't find in Acts. You don't, you don't find, you, 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 there's gaps there. And the Apostle Paul himself, in Galatians chapter 1, fills in some substantial gaps in his own biography uh, subsequent to this incident, this, this calling in Damascus that we read about in Acts chapter 9. Listen to Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. Just reminding you that the, the letter to the Galatians is focused upon the, Paul's sort of rebuke and rejection of a gospel that was being presented by the Judaizers that was teaching that you have to be circumcised and you have to uh, uh, adhere to uh, Mosaic standards and Mosaic law in order to be saved. It was, it was, a, it was a gospel of Jesus plus kind of message. And so the Apostle Paul is, as a, a converted Pharisee himself, is going after that false teaching and that false gospel with great intensity in Galatians. And so in the introductory chapter, he is starting off by providing a little bit of biographical background to sort of fortify his authoritative position, the authoritative posture from which he is communicating and speaking about this compromise and this adulteration of the true gospel. So starting in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then listen to verse 18. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Now, Paul here is going to great lengths to make an emphatic point that he states very clearly in verse 12 that the gospel I preached, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but as he says in verse 18, that just like the other apostles, I was under the direct tutelage of Jesus for three years. So therefore, this gospel that I am preaching to you is the gospel that was taught by Christ himself. That for three years, the Apostle Paul is saying here, no one, none of the other apostles, I didn't even go where they were. And we know that he, that he was in, the, in Arabia, and, and he was being taught by Christ. This is a reference to the more to come. 
that the Apostle Paul experienced. So when you get back to chapter 11, verse 23, and he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, I have no reason to question that he literally is talking about what he literally and directly received from the Lord by direct instruction and tutelage during this three-year period. There's other obvious references in the New Testament where he had, uh, got, had a vision of Christ and was told to go here and not there. Or he was talking in 2 Corinthians about the thorn in the flesh, a man who, who was taken into the seventh heaven and had visions of the Lord and couldn't really speak of it, but to keep him humble, he was given this thorn in the flesh. I mean, many, many times the Apostle Paul encountered the living Christ, but here we have what seems to be a discipleship period by Christ himself during this time. And so to me, there's really no need to say, this is just him passing on the traditions. So when we come back to this particular section, and we see that the Apostle Paul begins to introduce this teaching about the the nature and source and origin and content of the Lord's table, of the communion table, that he intends for the people in Corinth and for us to understand that this instruction is the literal and direct instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord recounted to me as to what He said to the disciples that were gathered with Him at Passover just before He went to the cross when He instituted this new covenant meal. And and that significant truth, that significant transmission, that special delivery of this kind of instruction... It doesn't give it unique weight that offsets or diminishes the weight of other instructions in Scripture or certainly other teaching by the Apostle Paul. It's all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it certainly helps us to understand, and I think it, 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 brings to, it should bring home to us a very significant and important point as it relates particularly to the communion meal. And that is that we can, no matter what our practice is, we can approach the communion meal with something less than what it actually is prescribed to be. And that is, to me, a grave caution for all of us. That is the challenge for all of us. That we approach our time of communion around the table, and we are not mindful of these instructions that the Apostle Paul was so intent on re-emphasizing with the Corinthians that he added this particular fact that this was delivered to him explicitly by the Lord. These are the explicit recountings of Christ's instructions about the elements of this meal and what the significance of it is. And so you can't, you can't take it lightly. You can't approach it in any kind of cavalier way. And so whether or not you are avoiding drunken revelry, or whether or not you're coming to the communion table, and as far as you know, sort of the accounts are clear, and you're not in any kind of protracted conflict with a fellow brother or sister in Christ, the the next sort of layer of instruction and warning and caution for us is that we recognize that that this this is a matter of serious instruction for the Apostle Paul, because it was serious instruction by Christ himself, that he not only gave to those disciples that were gathered in that room at the Passover, the original Passover when he instituted it. But it was such an important part of his instruction that he explicitly taught the Apostle Paul this as the resurrected Christ. 
That's that 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 kind of weight to me. I don't want to like just sort of set aside. It's just a, it's just passing on the tradition. That's like that, that takes on a whole other sort of level of significance in my mind as I think about how I approach communion every single month. He goes on obviously to warn not to not to approach the table in an unworthy manner, and he calls us to examine ourselves, of course. But the fact of the matter is, is that if we start here with that kind of gravity. That certainly helps me to kind of just take a pause and say, hang on a second. This is, this is the commemorative communion meal that the Lord himself, approaching a season of unparalleled and never to be repeated again anguish, no human being ever before or ever since will ever endure the anguish that our Lord endured when he went to the cross. He is on the eve of that, and he institutes this meal amongst his disciples. And it is a meal that is a call to remember, because we're prone to forget. And in our forgetfulness, we're prone to diminish the significance of things. So I don't want to diminish the significance even of this phrase that the Apostle Paul introduces this section of teaching with. This was a special delivery of this practice of the Lord's table that the Apostle Paul is passing on to these Gentile believers and by extension passing on to us and we we can't miss it. Not only do you have a special delivery right there in the opening phrase, but in the second part of Chapter 23, you have, obviously, a reference to the sovereign author of this meal. That's my best effort to come up with a, another S word. The sovereign author here. You have Christ himself who is instituting this meal. So, in other words, the Apostle Paul is reminding them that this is not a practice that I'm just instructing you in. This is not a practice that I'm just taking all the teachings of Christ and all the way that that, that instruction in Christ's work and ministry and life and death and redemptive work on the cross and all the instruction and discipleship that I've received and, and, and sort of integrating it into the, the greater thread of redemptive history that ties into my knowledge as someone who studied with the rabbis. He, he's not saying that, that I, I've extrapolated this from all that teaching as an important thing. He's saying this was authored by the Lord himself. He is the sovereign author, the sovereign originator, the sovereign institutor of this sacred meal. He says there in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus himself on the night when he was betrayed took bread. We need to recognize that this meal was something that was instituted by Christ himself by the sovereign Savior. And it it therefore adds additional weight and gravity to our partaking of it and our participation in it and our protecting of the sacredness of it. It was instituted by a sovereign author. It was delivered specially in this way that we've talked about. And then notice in verse 23, the somber occasion. I think we're going to have to pause here and maybe take this up because I've got a lot more I want to say about this. But just note there in the second part of verse 23, I've already referenced it. I received this from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night 
when he was betrayed, took the bread. On the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. Now, I'm sorry, but this is what Paul does, so this is what I feel like I'm going to have to do. I mean, this is just layer after layer. By the way, you notice we're still in verse 23, right? (laughs) This is layer after layer of sobriety introduced into our thinking. He's not missing a single mark here. This was delivered especially by Christ. This was instituted by the sovereign Savior that we worship. And you need to pay attention that the the environment, the setting of this was a somber occasion. We're going to look more in depth next time at this, this occasion of betrayal. How is it then that those who gather around Christ and spend three years sitting at His feet and witnessing His miraculous works and seeing the awe that His teaching inspired and being blown away by that as well. Even a few of them witnessing His unveiled glory on a mountain. And then others who weren't in that environment hearing testimony of this from their colleagues in ministry. How is it possible that those who are that close, that any one of them would become a betrayer of the Savior? And this is the, this is the strong and somber caution to us as God's people. And it reminds me of the warnings that you see all throughout the New Testament the warnings of how those that would seek to ruin God's people rise up in their midst. And we're living in a day and time where we look out in the culture around us and we feel a lot of threats externally, right? And we, we see a lot of developments, a lot of seeming tidal waves of cultural shift that give us cause for grave concern. You know, if you have children, you're thinking about, what is this going to look like for my kids? And, and we look down the, the corridors of time, and we sort of project out, and we begin to think, what's this going to be like for my, my child when they're 16, 17, 18, or when they're trying to have a family of their own? And you, you start to go through these machinations, and the concerns sort of swell up. But, but this is a reminder for us that, listen, we can get overly focused on outside concerns and threats and not be paying attention to the house of God and not be paying attention to our responsibilities and our obligations to one another, to being mindful of where people are, to being careful to attend to those who seem to be wayward, to not being slack or lazy when we hear people propagating things that aren't in alignment with God's revealed truth. And the fact of the matter is, is that the betrayers of the Savior are at table with him on this occasion. I should say the betrayer in this case. It's it's a man who was at the table. So we need to be mindful of this reality as God's people when we gather. This, this gathering of communion is a reminder that the Lord desires His church and His people to be characterized by purity. 
And that requires a certain amount of vigilance to maintain it. So there's a a somber occasion that's in view here. We'll probably look a little bit more at that next week and then move on with our study. But for now, it's 1024, and I want to give you a little bit of time of transition. So let's pray.